Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, I'm Stefan Fatsis, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast. Hang up and listen for the week of May 14th, 2018. On this week's show, I'll be joined by a special guest to talk about the NBA playoffs. Then the always great Roger Bennett of Men in Blazers will be here to discuss the once great English striker Wayne Rooney, who might be coming to America to play in Major League Soccer. And finally, Nate DeMeo, the creator of the podcast The Memory Palace, and the aforementioned special guest and I will have a conversation about tug-of-war because it's high time we conversed about tug-of-war on this program. Josh Levine is the author of the 2002 Washington City paper story, Plumbing the Depths, The EPA Finds Too Much Lead in D.C. Tap Water. He is away again this week. But you know who isn't away? The special guest. It's our old friend Mike Pesca. He's the host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist, and now he has edited a book. It's called Upon Further Review, The Greatest What-Ifs in Sports History. There are 31 of them. I wrote one. Josh wrote one. And you might now be realizing that Nate DeMeo wrote one, too. What if the Olympics hadn't dropped tug-of-war? Mike, congrats on the book. Tell everyone why they should buy it. Well, first of all, when you said there are 31 of them, I want to be clear that that's not the print run. Although maybe if you thought it was, you'd want to get in there quick. So one reason to buy it is that there are plenty of copies for everyone. Another reason to buy it is not only is this 31 people with 31 interesting ideas, it's really 32 or 33 because I wrote the intro and an intro to a chapter and Malcolm Gladwell wrote the forward. So just bonus content. Bonus. Before ball, if you will. Um, that's the forward. I tried to pitch my publisher on it. Can we call it the before ball? He was like, no, you're insane. That will affect book prices and we'll only do a print run of 29 if that's the case. Um, why everyone should buy it. It's a contemplation. It's beyond the actual stories themselves. It's a contemplation, a meta contemplation, if you will, uh, as to the nature of sports and rooting and ruing. And, uh, I think it's, uh, I think it's a great gift for Father's Day, of course. And, and Mother's Day, too. We've just missed Mother's Day, but, you know, I think in New Zealand it's a yeah, well timed, right? Mike, well timed. I mean, what I like about the book, and then we'll talk about basketball. Tell and me what you like. What I like about the book is that there's Let's a, get, there's a range, on. there's a range of, yeah. of ideas and a range of approaches to this open ended question of what if. Josh and I both wrote fiction. Um, yes. Other people took it very seriously. Well, you wrote memoir. Okay, yeah. faux memoir, faux so memoir. it becomes fiction. But if it were real, it would be total memoir. I mean, you wrote it in that style. I think that was the only one that was really so personal, although since it didn't happen, it was entirely impersonal. <laughs> Josh wrote Josh wrote a wacky movie treatment uh, a la Airplane. Uh, his chapter is what if uh, every sports movie cliche suddenly exploded in Game 7 of the 2016 World Series. So, you know, you thought, you thought that that was a Roldis Chapman, but it might have been Air Bud on the mound. 
and and then there are just straight histories, and then there are, as we're going to hear from Nate's, uh, total flights of fancy, and we have John Boyce in there imagining what would happen if the basketballs were bigger than the rims. Um, hilarity, but zero scoring ensues. And we have Claude Johnson wrote a chapter on the pre-NBA on a famous pass or an infamous pass that went awry from the hands of Nat Sweetwater, Sweetwater Clifton, Clifton, which I had never even heard of. And it's this amazing and really persuasive story of uh, the ripples of what ifs. It's great stuff, Mike. Sell a million copies. Thank you, buddy. All right, let's talk some basketball. In game one of the Eastern Conference Finals, the Boston Celtics rolled the Cleveland Cavaliers 108-83. to LeBron James scored just 15 points on 5 of 16 shooting. He had seven turnovers. His plus-minus was minus 32. The Cavs trailed by 26 points at the half, the most in James's 229 postseason games. To all of which I say, Mike Pesca, so what? This is what happens when LeBron has a bad day. His otherwise bad team gets blown out. How did you see it? Yeah, LeBron is playing with the worst collection of teammates that he's uh, ever played with. And I know that they were favorites going into this series. And I would assume that the presence of LeBron James was uh, 93% of why they were favorites. But I was thinking, and I might be wrong, they could come back and win, but I think I've watched every Cavs game this playoffs, and they were really close to losing to the Pacers. And the Pacers aren't a bad team at all. They're a pretty good team. But, you know, the Celtics, even this post-Kyrie and, I mean, do we even have to say post-Gordon Hayward injury Celtics, I I think they're just a better team than the Pacers. I think when Aladipo was off, you were getting no offense down the stretch from the Pacers. I think that the Celtics have a bunch of different options. And I really think... I was previewing this game on uh, one of the radio shows I do, and and I went through all the games, all the rounds. I'm like, oh, you have Steph Curry and the Warriors, and Harden and Paul on the Rockets, and of course LeBron and on the Celtics. And who did I? Who do you think I said? For what? For just just as the highlight? Oh, person. for the Celtics? Yeah, uh, Tatum. I said Brad Stevens. Brad Stevens. Because he's the most important person, not on the court, but off the court, other than LeBron James. And I've never said this, and this would be a fun uh, thought experiment, but I've never said this, but I think he's more valuable uh, as an NBA coach, just above replacement level or above who's out there, than anyone this side of Popovich. And to do it, I've been playing this game with my friends where I said, all right, who would you trade Tatum for? And, you know, Celtics fans don't want to trade him for anyone. But I go through the list, and of course they'll trade him. They get, they get wary when I say Harden, but they'll trade him for Curry, you mm-hmm. know, and they'll trade him for, they'll probably trade him for Ben Simmons. A lot of them would trade him for uh, um, Embiid. And I said, okay, would you trade Tatum and Brad Stevens for those guys? And they always say no. <laughs> yes, replacement value, infinite. Yeah, yeah. Um, LeBron, you know, this could be recency bias, of course, Mike. One game, this has happened before. They got blown out by the Pacers in game one. They they demolished Toronto. Um, LeBron was asked after the game on Sunday what his level of concern was. And he said, I have zero level of concern. I never went to college. This isn't March Madness. Um, we do tend to um, look at the the shiny object right in front of us and extrapolate um, that it will be will be showered with with gold. 
Yeah, I don't think that th- that it was a blowout matters. I could totally understand for a couple reasons why LeBron would not have concern. One, it doesn't help him to have concern. Two, he's lived his own life and he's known the times when he should have concern. And you know, they they are not teams. I'm sure if you asked him when the uh, Warriors were blowing them out last year, if he oh, had concern yeah. deep down, he would have. But in any of these series, they asked him last year against the Raptors, do you have concern? And he just laughed and he should have laughed. And so at this point, uh, I think he's right not to have concern, but I would put it this way. I have no more concern having lost game one with full knowledge that, you know, we're still 100% of our way to our goal and they're 25% of the way. I have no more concern than I would having taken in the totality of the season. If you take in the totality of the season, I think that there is cause for concern, but not because of game one, except for the fact that it's an L rather than W. Yeah, well, because games two, three, and four also could be terrible because they have shown signs of being terrible for stretches during the season, even after they overhaul the roster with whatever an eighth or a tenth of the season left to go. Yeah, well, the argument would be that the guys they got, so George Hill wasn't good in the Pacers series, so someone could argue against me and say, well, that's a reason they took him to seven. I don't know. Uh, we're relying on we're relying on Hill to be healthy. He s- showed up well in that particular matchup against the Raptors. I would think that you know his value is on both ends of the floor, but especially defensively. I would think that Brad Stevens would have ways to neutralize neutralize George Hill. I don't think that that's high on the list of things Brad Stevens can't do. You know the well, one, particularly, yeah, particularly yeah. particularly when he doesn't have a and it's not a very long list. Yeah. Right. It's like try to neutralize LeBron. You're not going to do that. So try to do what you can. And what else do you really need to be concerned about? It's not a super long list, at least based on game one and even based on other games during the postseason. Stick to the shooters. Make sure as best you can that love stays terrible love instead of glimpses of greatness. Mm -hmm. Love. JR is going to take his shots. Harass him a little bit. There is something, though, interesting. We always say, well, LeBron's going to get his shots. We say this about superstars. We say this about even sub superstars. And it's, you know, true. Like Steph's going to get a shot and and Harden's going to get a shot. It seems to me that when we say that, we're saying, well, he's going to score at will. No, that's not true. He's not going to score at will. He's going to score at an unbelievable rate, but will it be spectacularly unbelievable mm-hmm. or will it be merely unbelievable? Right. Uh, on the Sports Reporters podcast, which I was listening to, they were talking about the difference between genius and magic, not Magic Johnson, but I don't think that that's possible in the universe, right? <laughs> and it seems like, uh, especially in the last series with uh, the two game winners, including the one off his wrong foot, LeBron was in the category of magic. And it, it is not Magic Johnson, just some just magic. extra Lower level case, of etherealness. Magic, yeah. But think about his offensive game now. Here's a guy who could literally get to any place on the court, can himself just put his head down and dribble to any place on the court outside of maybe the guarded area, right? There, there, mm-hmm. there are a couple seven-footers on a lot of teams who protect that tiny area. Of course, if he got there, it would be a dunk, so we wouldn't be talking. Or a foul. So, Right. So here's a guy, especially LeBron, would, even if it's not a foul, it would right. be a foul. So gets to any spot in the court. And now he has this tool in his arsenal where he can leap in any direction and there's no defender on earth who could stay with him during the leap. And he can score if you did sort of a scatter plot from the areas he could leap from. He could score either well or exceedingly well from any place he leaps to. So this killer fadeaway away from the basket, redundant, sorry, this killer fadeaway away from the basket that is indefensible, he scores on it, it seems like, half the time. His offensive arsenal is just unbelievable. Unbelievable. Right. So you're praying for him to have a terrible day like he did on Sunday, um, which is not going to persist, but... 
this is still not a very good basketball team. <laughs> uh, good timing, though, for Nick Green's piece in Slate last week, the do's and don'ts of engaging in a LeBron versus Jordan debate. Um, you know, the LeBron versus Jordan debate was lit after the, uh, the end of the last series, or at least after, you know, the shot that beat uh, the beat that beat the Raptors. Um, this is a wonderful contribution to the, uh, to the canon <laughs> because this is the dumbest argument of dumb arguments. And I have some clips for us, Mike, cause I figured okay. like, this is really great. We got to play some clips here. Let's start with Dan Patrick. This has quietly become a conversation again. And it's a testament to what LeBron has done. Two years ago, I would bring this up. LeBron and Jordan, and I'd get shut down. I'd get shut down. Hey, stop. Don't even bring it up. Not a conversation. LeBron's not in his category, in his world. Now, all of a sudden, it's a little more of a casual conversation. (laughs) He goes on to say, Mike, that LeBron is now in the conversation. Yeah. He, I thought I thought when the topic of the conversation was LeBron versus Jordan, I thought that that would be in there. Imagine, let's have this conversation. LeBron versus Jordan with LeBron not in the conversation. I'll go first. Well, I'd go with Jordan because he's the only one we're talking about. I know. have to agree with you, Mike. I mean, this whole LeBron versus Jordan, especially uh, when we're not talking about Jordan, you know, I've really weighed the evidence. And especially, I know it's not out of favor, but VORP, it leads towards Jordan by 100%. If you look at the totality of Michael Jordan's career against yeah. everybody except LeBron James, you yeah. got to go with Michael Jordan. For the top three players of all time, without LeBron being in the conversation, <laughs> I'd go someone, Jordan, Bill Russell. And you could argue that Bill Russell belongs either number one or number two. The part that I liked, about, the part I liked about the Dan Patrick was that he said it's quietly become a conversation. Mm-hmm. So let's yeah. listen to just how quiet a conversation it is. I'm going to give you one last chance to stop being so blasphemous, Scottie Pippen. Michael Jordan or LeBron James better? Who are you going with? Well, I'm going to go with Michael Jordan. Shock! <laughs> Shockaroo! <laughs> <laughs> that was actually from three years ago, so I was being yeah. a little disingenuous there. But still, but it was quiet. quiet three years that ago. That is quiet for Stephen A. Smith. True. That is that is subtlety. There, there's symbolism there. <laughs> you have to pick up. That was basically the This Is America Childish Gambino rap video version of Stephen <laughs> Stephen Smith making a point. That's how many little tiny clues you had to pick up on if he was actually asking if LeBron was as good as Jordan. All right, let's do one right. more. Skip Bayless, Shannon Sharp, they went on for 13 and a half minutes while poor Joy Taylor, you know, the woman in the middle of the table who has to mm-hmm. arbitrate, um, she sat there while these two idiots yelled at each other. In the timeless sports talk tradition, Bayless had one point. Jordan was a solo all-star nine times. LeBron was... A solo all star, meaning none of his teammates were all star. Only five, and one solo of Jordan's. All-star. And he's invented the solo all star. Solo all star, <laughs> yes, that's yeah. a critical stat. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, one of those was Jordan's 1998 championship season, the last one. He repeated this for 13 and a half minutes. Let's listen to a little clip. Nobody else on that team made the all star team. Can you believe that? Scottie Pippen, that guy you were raving about, yeah. he didn't even make the all star team as Michael's teammate that year, 1998 in which they went all the way to Utah game six. And you know what happened? Michael stole the ball from Carl Malone, dribbled up the court. He didn't try some funky, crazy horse shot off one foot falling out of bounds. He just went straight up on Push Byron out. Russell right there at the free the last, throw line, the last, held the pose, just held the what pose. What would the last two-minute report say? 
Yeah, he didn't try some crazy horse shot, Mike. Yeah, I mean, hitting a a difficult shot, that certainly uh, takes you down a peg or two. Yeah. That certainly- At the buzzer? uh, Like a perfectly Exculpatory towards the conversation of greatness. Yes, We need perfect form. We need the push-off against the Jazz to be the perfect textbook Uh push-off. That's what we need. Uh Exactly. Could we, so you say the, you say the argument's ridiculous and I think it's impossible, but it's not ridiculous in terms of these are the best two or three guys. And by the way, if I was starting a team from scratch, depending on the pool of players, like if it was only among the 50 best players of all time, I probably would pick Bill Russell, I think. But anyway, 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 um, do you have any thoughts on the best way or either how we think or the strategies for evaluation either some people say i can't do it within while one person is playing or the other one is um i'm stats based i have different criteria or i choose not to engage because it uh preserves my mental health any thoughts on any of those i choose not to engage because it preserves my mental health um you know these are these are these these arguments are only for Skip and Shannon and and, and tell But everyone talk. has them. But everyone has them. They are fun to have in the privacy yeah. of your own friendships, I think. Um, yeah. When they are polluting the airwaves and they become these polemics and they are, you know, they, they suit the form so perfectly. You know, Dan Patrick is a master of repeat your point over and over again, um, as all these guys are. I don't know what it achieves. I mean, oh, I'm going to pick Bill Russell, whom I never saw play, except yeah, in I've grainy black and white six-second clips. Yeah, it is true. I have very strong opinions on Jim Brown, who I literally have never <laughs> seen play in a full game, let alone a full set of downs. And can't really evaluate yeah. the level of competition in any meaningful, <laughs> yeah. empirical way. Yeah. Guys who are like uh, car salesmen on uh, three days a week trying to stop him. But what about, here's just one more thing with the debate. Yeah. And I was listening to Sim on this point. So he looks at Jordan's baseball interregnum as sullying the legacy a bit. Or do does one look at it like the Ted Williams called off to war? Yes. But for the absence, so it's either if you add in those two years, all his accumulated stats, maybe another championship, or do you say, you know, he has to be punished for taking the time off of baseball? That that is was like voluntarily taking him away from his game of greatness. Well, I think we certainly like to punish athletes who choose to do things that fall out of the norm of what is acceptable and what we as consumers want. We wanted to see Michael Jordan keep playing. Um, We wanted Landon Donovan to keep playing. Jurgen Klinsmann wanted to punish him because he needed a mental health hiatus of a year. Um, So we factor that into these stupid conversations uh, um, in, in terms of gauging their legacy. If it's Ted Williams going off to war, well, that was patriotic and he had yeah. to do that. So we're not going to discount that in any way. He was good at it. <laughs> and he was very good at the war yeah, part. He was much, much what if, better what, what at the if Ted war Williams, part right. than Michael Jordan was at the baseball What if Ted part? Williams was as bad at targeting uh, Korean MIGs as Jordan was at curveballs? <laughs> All right, let's do one more clip. And to introduce that clip... Um, I'm going to talk about Dwayne Casey, who was fired as the Toronto Raptors head coach after leading the Toronto Raptors to 59 wins, most in the Eastern Conference, but then getting swept inexcusably by Cleveland in the second round of the playoffs, benched DeMar DeRozan in game four, um, and that prompted this exchange between Charles Barkley and Shaquille O'Neal on TNT. 
If you don't have a great relationship with your best player, you're never going to win. That's not true. Uh, he did not. That's play, not true. He did not, well, he, he, in That's your opinion. True. No, just because you say something, you're just That's not true. Me, no, and, it's not true. Me and Pat Riley never saw eye to eye it's and what happened to my man win. So it's not true what you're saying. Well, you it's not true what you're saying. See, I can totally get behind this television argument. Mm-hmm. I love this television argument because I think that they might actually want to fight. And I don't think that they're just play acting. Yeah. And I would love to see that happen. I would love to see a Chrissy Everett moment on TNT with a table getting flipped over and these two (laughs) fat old guys going at him. But I think those two guys didn't like each other. And I'd like to think that Shaq and Chuck like each other just so long as Chuck knows his place, which is a little under Shaq. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, they did have to walk it back and apologize. Um, yeah, and Shaq said they go back into the green room and eat Krispy Kreme after the show, and everything. I do fine. think Sha- I do think Shaq's points, not the maybe not how he argued, but just if you lined up his points, they were better than Chuck's points. And Chuck came back with trying to say you won those championships because of Kobe. Come on, there are twenty guys you could have paired Shaq with during the and era of Shaq dominance that would yeah. have won championships. Yeah. All right, Mike Pesca. We've talked about the NBA. We've really talked about the East and guys who played oh, right. 20 years ago. <laughs> I forgot about the West. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts? I don't uh, right know. I'm, I'm, just, I, I'm just excited to see about it. It's pretty much started ask, yet as we yeah. speak. So when people, I think when that's people ask me what I talk. think about the Iran deal and the South Korean deal, I say the same as mm-hmm. the uh, Golden State-Houston deal. Let's, let's see. I'm, I'm excited. Mike Pesca <laughs> is the editor of Upon Further Review the greatest what-ifs in sports history. He'll be back momentarily. And we should m- mention the podcast. Oh, yeah. You host a podcast? It's called The and, Well, yes, but the Upon oh, Further Review podcast. Go ahead. Why don't you just uh, do your own outro? Okay. Well, starting tomorrow, there is a podcast of Upon Further Review. It's not just reading from chapters. It's ideas, fully executed radio slash audio ideas taken from uh, the pages or at least inspired by Upon Further Review. We have the guys from Slow Burn doing episode one, What If Nixon Were Good at Football, which will be posted on Tuesday. Subscribe to the Upon Further Review podcast feed for that. Robert Siegel of NPR is coming out of retirement to uh, do a fake report and sully his legacy also. Thanks, Mike. You're welcome. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Mike Pesca will be rejoining the show in a bit to talk about Tug of War, and then he'll re-rejoin for our bonus segment for Slate Plus listeners, during which we'll talk about Chinese nicknames for NBA players. Spoiler, they are fantastic nicknames. Definitely worth joining Slate Plus to hear this. It's just $35 a year, and you get bonus segments on this and other Slate podcasts every week. Sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus.
Wayne Rooney has scored more goals in international competition, 53, than any other Englishman. But as Roger Bennett writes in his new book, Men in Blazers Present Encyclopedia Blazer Tanica, a suboptimal guide to soccer, America's sport of the future since 1972, <laughs> co-authored with his soccer media empire partner, Michael Davies, Rooney's achievement is, quote, tarnished by the sense of unfulfilled promise that has haunted his career. Roger Bennett is here. Welcome back to the show, Raj. Oh, Stefan, thanks for having me on. Aren't we all tarnished by unfulfilled promise in our career? Oh, I'm haunted <laughs> every moment of my life. Congratulations on the book. It is really delightful. We will talk a bit about it later. Uh, Raj, oh, the Rooney entry features several drawings of the pudgy 32-year-old in progressively challenged follicular states, and I know that's close to your heart. England has a love-hate relationship with Wayne Rooney. If he leaves Everton... For DC United of Major League Soccer, will America too? How bad an idea is this? Well, to understand the essence of Wayne Rooney, you really needed to see him when he burst onto the scene as a stocky 17-year-old, just full of pace, a snarling ball of physicality and aggression. It's like watching Esau from the Bible rip from the fields and let loose uh, <laughs> on a football field in an Everton jersey, in an England jersey. He left Everton uh, my childhood desire, my obsession. Um, and he moved to Manchester United as an 18-year-old, spent 13 seasons there, became that club's record goal scorer. More than 200 won, goals, yeah. Yeah, won five Premier League titles, won the ch- So he's a winner, but there's still always a sense that he never truly delivered in an England jersey. Also, he was a second fiddle to Ronaldo. He, gave, he sacrificed his kind of leadership role for the good of the team to Ronaldo, who was a year older than him. But you compare the two now, Stefan, uh, he's a year younger than Ronaldo. He's just 32. Uh, I think his body would probably carbon test about 40 years older. And it's hard to when when, when you see Ronaldo rip off that jersey, reveal that eight pack nipples. Per, yeah, you don't say, you don't you don't want per, Wayne Rooney to do that. You, you don't. You, you're praying the man's wearing a corset. What what you have is years of beer, years of pies, years of hard living, years of multiple hair transplants. And they've taken their toll. So he's he's, he's, just, he's just the quintessential Englishman. The the Guardian's uh, cheeky Fiverr blog noted that quote whenever suggestions of Rooney going somewhere foreign have surfaced in the past, they have been accompanied by widespread patronizing titters suggesting that this is a grown man who could not handle any kind of change of culture. So now the reports are that Rooney has agreed in principle to a deal to come to America and play for DC United, a woebegone franchise once proud in Major League Soccer. Wayne Rooney is not, to put it mildly, the most worldly athlete. Uh, and Major League Soccer, when it brings over your Zlatans and your Pirlos and your name some more, your Beckhams, you want some marketing juice here. I don't think they're yeah. getting that with Wayne Rooney. He's not the most cooperative um, uh, specimen when it comes to the media, is he? Well, you know, I think we have to judge the way the English media cover Wayne Rooney with a hint of classism. Um, you know, they treat him with disdain, patronizingly. But there is a remarkable human being in there with remarkable achievements. He still has a lot to offer the game. He's coming off a dreadful year at Everton. He returned to his boyhood club um, to prove almost there's no romance in football. An awful year of transition, flickering moments of happiness probably mildly akin to Michael Jordan, the Washington uh, Wizards years, ultimately proved you can't uh, return to, to, to the source of the river. 
DC United, they need an established star to spark interest, sell tickets. They're about to move into a spankingly beautiful new 20,000-seat stadium in July, Audi Field. They are a once-great team. They have languished. They've had restricted investment while they've spent $400 million uh, on their ground. He will bring marketing muscle. I mean, when he returned to Everton last year, his first tweet in which he signed with, with a Sharpie, a pane of glass, was Everton's most successful tweet by a multiple of 10. You know, he brings Asian, African, instant eyeballs, relevance uh, for the DC United brand. Uh, The Washington Post, Scott Allen, calculated that Rooney has more Twitter followers at 17 million than every DC sports star and franchise combined. And that includes the Washington Valor of the Arena Football League, Raj. Yeah, I've got to say, I've got to say the thought of uh, Wayne Rooney going on the lash with OV8 and George Marison, uh, that fills me with with pleasure. For that reason alone, and I'm told by DC United that the deal is very, very close, very, very close. For that reason alone, uh, that reality TV on the lash with Wayne, OV, George Marison, um, I, I hope this comes to fruition. I hope, I, hope they all, I hope they all live together. All right, let's talk about another uh, European star that has come over, Zlatan Ibrahimovic. He has, <sighs> uh, I think, three goals in his first seven games for LA Galaxy. He's playing for just one and a quarter million dollars. He's here for other reasons. Rooney and Zlatan are kind of poles in terms of media interest, personality, and uh, sort of ego-driven celebrities. Zlatan to LA was a no-brainer. Um, he scored two goals in his crazy debut. Um, the team now has lost four straight games. The last time Ibrahimovic was on a team that lost more than two consecutive games, I'm reading from the LA Times, was 17 years ago when he was still playing for his hometown in Sweden. Does Zlatan care if they're losing? He seems to because he's already started calling out his teammates. Yeah, he he does care. I mean, he has the mentality of a of a winner. That's his brand. That's what he does. He goes to teams. They automatically win. He trotted onto the field in his first game against local newcomer rivals, LAFC, and changed the complexion of the game, scoring two staggering exclamation points of uh, points of goals. I mean, they 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 passed the smell test of two constituencies. The first was European football fans, hardcore connoisseurs who looked at them and were like wow those are that no one could say that was just crap that was just mls zlatan's gonna score easy goals there they were phenomenal superlative aesthetically beautiful goals and then the smell test of the wider american sports fan who gets to glimpse them on sports center's top 10 you look at them and you are blown away by what he did uh, on the field and, and and by the league for a moment. So well, they were, and, and that's what the league wants, Raj. I mean, Zlatan, you know, he's milking the media opportunity. He's already been on Jimmy Kimmel and James Corden, which is great for Major League Soccer. He's plugging, you know, they're plugging the team's next games and telling people to go buy tickets in Los Angeles. His shtick is, of course, about his ego, but he was really good, I have to say, on James Corden. He joked about the status of his being sculpted in Sweden. They compared it to Ronaldo's uh, sculpture, that, that hideous bust of body of him. That's that it's really a hideous thing. If you haven't ever seen it. Um, and he did a skit that was really <laughs> good um, based on the Zoltan fortune teller scene from big. Let's listen to 30 seconds of that. Last question. I love hosting The Late Late Show, I, I, I really do. But I also love acting in movies and on Broadway. And, well, will I ever find a way to balance everything and be truly happy? 
let Zlatan tell you about Zlatan's first game with the LA Galaxy. Zlatan's team was losing, and then the people screamed, we want Zlatan. And Zlatan gave them Zlatan. He scored an amazing goal that nobody else can do. And then in the stoppage time, he took care of it. So watch Zlatan and learn. Zlatan gave them Zlatan. He's funny. He's introducing he his is. character to the American audience, but he's got to still en- play, right? And engaging the widest possible uh, kind of American sports first, soccer curious audience yes. in a way that in a way the World Cup does, Stefan, which is exactly what MLS needs to grow next level. Unfortunately for Zlatan, the one thing he can't do is play defense, which is what LA Galaxy need uh, right now. And for all of the impact he's had on the field, and he is. You know, to see a 36-year-old rebound from a savage injury, stroll onto the field and have a real impact, it's remarkable um, from a human perspective. And and the goals he scored, if they happen in the Roman period, Virgil will be writing epic poems about them. You know, to some degree, it's mission accomplished. He has his sports centre highlights on the field. From MLS's perspective, he's just got to pull in that wider audience. But and if... Uh, LA Galaxy continue to leak at the rate they have, watching him adjust to coach flights um, across America with a team that are not winning, that's going to be a uh, a saga that, that will be uh, potentially ugly on the ice. Right, but if that flips, again, this brings us back to should we be bringing over these kinds of players? Uh, there are also reports that uh, Javier Chicharito, Hernandez, who's playing for West Ham in the Premier League, might be coming over. Mario Balotelli is on the radar now. I am not opposed to this. I mean, I know there are a lot of people that say we should be cultivating more Latin talent and domestic talent, but MLS is doing that, and I think you need to supplement with with these kinds of players, particularly in a year where the United States is not in the World Cup. Oh, Sorry to bring this up man. for both of us. Darkness. This is heartbreaking. Darkness. Darkness. Yeah, but the, yeah, I, I'll be candid. I grew up in England around the time the Premier League started in 1992. Back then, the Italian Serie A, which is hard to believe because it's become somewhat of a uh, of a backwater. That was the place. That was the, the that was the dream. That was the Hollywood of, of football in Italy, and, and English English football was a backwater. And to begin with, with the Premier League, the players that came to it were uh, the Premier League was seen as the elephant's graveyard. It was Italian stars at the end of their career would do a year or two at Chelsea or Manchester United. There was an I remember an Italian player called Ravinelli, grey-haired gentleman, came over signed for Middlesbrough, and I remember speaking to an Italian journalist at the time who said, when Ravinelli, my hero, signed for the English Premier League, I felt sorry for him that he had to stoop so low. And you need to understand, we need to understand about MLS. It's only just over 20. The world's leagues are not a hierarchy, which is, which is cemented. They are absolutely fluid. The tectonic plates that underlie them are constantly shifting. Leagues grow, rise in the firmament, others uh, collapse, some implode. And what happened in England? To begin with, we brought over the dinosaurs. And then slowly, we started to take some punts on new, fresh talent. Uh, Your Bergkamps, who failed in Italy and thrived unbelievably in England. Thierry Henry, who'd done the same. And a balance of power shifts at a certain point. And MLS right now has a fascinating, intoxicating uh, young breed of South and Central American player 19, 20, 21, who are outstanding. They're on the radar of the European clubs. All right, Raj, before I let you go, let's talk a bit about your new book. It really Please. is kind of a biography. Um, there's an entry on your bar mitzvah, and it's also a biography <laughs> of men in blazers and your relationship with Michael Davies, your co-host and co-author, and with America and American soccer. 
you know, you're sort of between the wit and the self-deprecation and the absurdity and the fantastic dot drawings that brought me back to my days as a Wall Street Journal reporter. I mean, bits of this are really touching, and you're very gracious about your unexpected success here in America. But enough of my praise for you. Let's talk about the top 10 World Cup jerseys of all time. You have a list, and I'm yep. down with the list. You sort of, you, you sort of toggle between the aesthetic beauty of Holland 1974 or Argentina 1976 away and the absurdity of Croatia's um, picnic table uniform from 2006. What was your rationale for the rankings, Raj, before we get you to know, the number one? Uh, yeah, Jersey provokes an emotional reaction in the viewer. They really, that they, they are, uh, they are unbelievably um, emotional, nostalgic um, connects between the viewer um, and the player. And when I'm flicking through the book, and the book is designed to be a a, a companion for anyone that is going to cut off a work. It's designed to be a companion for any American who knows that they are going to spend a month cutting work and daytime drinking en masse um, during the World Cup to fully appreciate the kind of heroes, villains, um, haircuts, and ill-judged neck tattoos that they're about to encounter. And uh, in Also, the also days, good for the bathroom, I might add. <laughs> yes, indeed. If you run out of toilet paper, this is probably a cheaper... <laughs> That's not uh, what I meant. A, 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 a cheaper accompaniment than two-ply. But World Cup uniforms, they used to separate one team from another, but now kind of gemmed up by the, the intense competition between the big three um, apparel companies, they create a dizzying um, kind of competition aesthetically to, to meld our memory of unbelievable athletic pursuit with, uh, with, with the poetry and, and the aesthetics of what goes down. So really, when I shut my eyes and I measure my life by World Cup, they are the spine to my life, Stefan. Whenever I'm told a year, I immediately locate the nearest World Cup year, and then only then can I remember where I was in my biography. When I shut my eyes, I think of Peru 1978, that stark slash slicing through the shirt. I'm a, I just believe far more jerseys should have a diagonal uh, sash down. Brazil 1970, that simple, oh, exquisite jersey, which is almost made for the advent of color television, the simple yellow, mm -hmm. uh, the green neck, which is inseparable from and, the and stylish. There's a, and there's an interesting backstory to the design. Play. Yeah, there's an interesting backstory to, to Brazil's design, but we'll get into that another day. Yeah, and you know, you see, I still see, I've got to say, number three, the East German jersey from 1974, mm. I still look at it and feel shivers uh, that uh, run down my spine, as I do when I see Diego Maradona's Argentina 1986 jersey, which he single-handedly uh, destroyed the dying embers of the uh, of the British Empire mm -hmm. with two remarkable goals. But number one, number, number one, one Stefan. we are together on number one. We <laughs> are bonded. We are transatlantically connected with number one. And it is, of course, the USA 1994 home and away. I, they, they were just, I, 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 I just see Alexi Lalas wearing the... That, that 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 denim blue with the distorted stars slashing oh. diagonally across the bottom half of the jersey. And I have to tell you, I watched that guy just move to America. I couldn't find football anywhere in this country, soccer, when I arrived here. And then suddenly, my God, you're hosting the World Cup. And to watch these American soccer players walk onto the field 
swagger onto the field, almost like um, the diners and reservoir dogs in that opening scene. And they were ginger of mullet and they were just unbelievably self-confident. They had no right to be, but they walked on in that stonewashed denim jersey. I had never seen anything like it. I'd, I'd watched English football for years where the players, the great players, my heroes, pulled on that England jersey and it weighed as heavy as chainmail and just sank them to their doom. To watch these Americans in stonewashed denim in 1994 walk onto the field chewing gum, almost like uh, Babe Ruth pointing to the bleachers and then hitting a home run. I will never forget that. I fell in love with the game of football uh, football in America right at that very side. I always loved America. I grew up under posters of the Chicago Bears 85-86 team, Molly Ringwald, Debbie Gibson, Sergeant Bilko, Public Enemy, Ferris Bueller. I always loved America. I always wanted to live here. But when I watched those footballers swagger onto that field and take on all comers, Stefan, I knew, I knew, I knew that the game of football long, 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 like Captain Kirk space, the final frontier for the game of football. I knew the game was going to take hold here. I knew it was going to take root. Roger, I grew up under a Las Vegas Quicksilver's pennant. <laughs> Roger Bennett is the author with Michael Davies of Men in Blazers present Encyclopedia Blazer Tanica, a suboptimal guide to soccer, America's sport of the future since 1972. It is available now. Roger and Michael will be touring the country during the World Cup. Get tickets to see them at meninblazers.com. Roger, thank you uh, so much. Stefan, thank you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Tug of War was included in five of the first six modern Olympics, and then it was kicked out. And ever since, the world has asked, what would have happened if Tug of War had stayed in the games? Nate DeMeo has answered the call of history in his essay in the new book, Upon Further Review, The Greatest What-Ifs in Sports History, which, as previously mentioned, is edited by Mike Pesca. Mike is back. Hey, Mike. Hey, how are you? And <laughs> Nate DeMeo is here. He is the creator of the award-winning podcast, The Memory Palace, and the co-author of Pawnee, The Greatest Town in America. Welcome, Nate. Delighted to be here. First time, long time. All right, which one of you came up with what is clearly, as the book's subtitle declares, one of the greatest what-ifs in sports history? It's a great question. Do you remember, Nate? <laughs> yes, I think this one came to me instantly because it is one of the what-ifs that has kept me, if not up at night, it has, it has entertained me to sleep as I've tried to fall, fall asleep, sussing out what would have happened. Had, uh, so it, it was already left. written. It was it wrote itself. It was in my yeah. head. I have, I have thought too much about this for too long to not get it on paper. All right, when, so the, you, when you think about things like that, do you score it as if it's a podcast episode or do you see it as if it's a sepia tone film or do you see it in written form as it eventually was birthed? I see it. Real. It's more of a blood and thunder. It has the urgency of the now. Yeah. All right. So the IOC doesn't kick tug of war out of the games after 1920. What happens next, Nate? I'm especially intrigued by the dead tug era. So don't leave that out. <laughs> well, I mean, the truth of the matter is, you know, as one would expect in, in a, uh, a book of what ifs uh, and have, you know, being a person who 
you know, I spend most of my time uh, writing these sort of very earnest stories about real history um, to be able to kind of like let it rip uh, uh, led me toward comedy. But the, the key to all of this is that, you know, while tug itself is not actually all that great of a sport, like to, truth be told, if, if you watch, for instance, like the 2005 European Championships on YouTube, or even you can even watch uh, uh, without commentary, the sort of 1910 uh, you know the police, the London Police Athletic League competing against Denmark or or whomever. Um, it's not that it's it's not that compelling of a of an activity. Like this isn't like how every uh, four years people watch a little bit of team handball and then get excited, speculating what like LeBron James could do to the Croatian handball team. You know, like maybe this is actually a, con- like a conversation yeah. we've had on the podcast. I, absolutely. And it's, but, but you, but it's because the game itself is compelling. I mean, this is like, that's a sport that Ben Simmons can actually hit the net in. It would, he would be the ideal team handball player, but it's not even curling, which if you get you know into the weeds, you start to see these sort of incredible nuances. You know, it is just people across the line and as, as people have done at field days at school, you know, or in gym class, uh, you know, just trying to drag this, this uh, uh, point drawn onto a rope, you know, six or seven feet in, in the opposite direction. And hopefully like comedy will ensue, like hopefully there'll be a tangle of sophomores or whatever like that. The game ultimately isn't that great. And if you watch it now and you watch the, the highest end competitors, it is um, it's this sort of a, a game of attrition. Like you watch these men, usually men, um, uh, you know, very burly with massive legs, you know, with faces knitted in concentration for really like five, six, seven minutes as they are trying to wear out the other team. Beside them is someone who is essentially like, it's kind of like a coxswain, you know, that's like part coxswain, part field marshal, kind of like saying like, hold the line, boys, hold the line, boys. And then they like do like a little bit of like, OK, step back. And then they all kind of step back in concert or step back twice uh, uh, in quick succession, trying to jar the other folks. And it's a little bit like sort of uh, in those uh, velodrome based racing where there's this kind of like stalking for position you know, the subtle art of gaining that position is kind of lost on most people. And then something kind of busts out at the end. And it's now, Nate, fairly fun. You've gone, oh. you've gone all literal here, Nate. We want to know in the alternative history of world sport, what happens if tug of war stays in the Olympics and gains prominence? Well, here's the key. The key is the game is not that good, but where its power lies and where the alternative history begins is in narrative. Because oh, I thought you were going to say in the lower body. Oh, <laughs> <damn>. <laughs> no, it's a narrative, and what? And as we know, and as a listener to, as a listener to, hang up and listen knows, most of the power of sports is in narrative. And so, what is better than having a team, pure athletic sport like this? Is tug is you know to team sports as like the one hundred meters is uh, to the individual sport. It is pure sport. It is it is just tugging? It's fantastic, and so. Uh, where this, where I feel like this game could get traction in the real world and where it gets traction in the essay is when it starts to embody the class, the clash of nations. So, you know, in the essay, um, what you, what you would need for that to really take hold is you need some key, you know, you know, inciting incident. And so what better place to sort of define the, uh, uh, the, at least, you know, to define the sort of, uh, uh, the thrill of the thrill of the Olympics on the grand stage than 1936 in Berlin. 
So good. So <laughs> many thoughts have flitted through my mind as you've been speaking. One is, it is true that the activities that might seem the most exciting to behold, uh, because we've seen clips of them or they have an inherent drama, are the least exciting. And I think of surfing. I once covered a surfing match, and it was couldn't be more boring because 98% of the time was the guy not being able to get up on the board and catch a wave. Uh, similarly, the uh, pole vault, which is an exciting sport in tiny, tiny bursts. If you ever just had to concentrate on a pole vault match, it's a lot of resetting the pole and waiting to run up to the vault. It's much less exciting than it would be, than it would seem, and thus, thus is true with tug of war. Also, it seems to me that we have, so if we take the Olympic motto of stronger, faster, higher, we have team sports that certainly emphasize faster. Every relay race is just at different lengths, either in the pool or on the track, versions of faster. And higher, maybe this may be a little more of a stretch, but the team sport of basketball is to some extent about achieving heights and dunking and alley-oops and owning the boards. There's a higher aspect to that. Pole vaulting for sure. Yeah, Paul, but it's but but in terms of the team, yeah. team. If you take strength, the idea of just actual physical strength, and that could show up in different ways, and you apply it to the team, we have nothing. I need. I know that the that wrestlers, there's a wrestling team, but they're all individuals. And also, by the way, wrestling like tug of war is boring in that. Oftentimes, especially Greco-Roman, there's not much action. It's just two guys exerting their strength on each other, and it just when two unbelievably forceful um, pieces of momentum come at each other to the viewer just looks like nothing so tug of war is the only sport i could think of that is that combines four or five people working together and exerting strength and you're right it is boring but it is it is kind of unique well the the other one proxy though nate right and this is where you go in the essay as a proxy for national strength it's perfect you know 1936 you've got jesse owens and hitler and things happen no, it, in make like this it, a defining moment. And then the Cold War, it's a perfect proxy for the Cold War. And I loved the seven dwarves versus the four giants. <laughs> one of the great tug of war matches of all time. Yeah, it, it, it's, it is. It's that it, it it's that absolute thing because it, it's just strength against strength. I mean, even even the great, you know, uh, like the the 1980 uh you know men's victory in hockey against the US men's victory in hockey against the Soviet Union like that is sort of like it's like a next level victory cuz that's about like the state versus amateurism etc like this is just the strength of one nation against the strength of one nation uh, i mean this is the kind of thing that that both you know it's like the perfect cold war backdrop but also as a you know like there can also be upstarts like there's no reason that that uh you know that for instance you know the great when when we think of um you know the the nations of giants like you think about uh uh you know the the pacific islanders um you know who uh, excel uh as american football players or in international rugby um think of what a great team uh could be uh could be brought together you know what the who are the all blacks of uh, of new zealand of tug um you feel like they could have clearly taken down the soviet empire in 1972 now, we should mention, if people don't know this, that aside from the Memory Palace, one of your credits is, although this book was credited to Leslie Nope, you wrote The History of Pawnee. Um, and this was, well, I think it has a lot of similarities to this chapter in that you've taken the fictional and couldn't treat it more literally. How much 
was that project similar to this one? Yeah, uh, one of the great joys of of uh, writing uh, co-writing that book uh, with Mike Schur, friend friend of the pod, um, and some of the staff writers at Parks is that it really is an incredible break of writing true stuff is to take the true and then iterate toward the ridiculous. Um, you know, so uh, you know, taking the proposition that okay, so what if? Uh, what if uh, we uh, the Olympics stays in tug of war and it becomes central and becomes this proxy for national competition? Um, you know who, which stars emerge is part of the fun of it, and some of it, some of the fun of it is trying to figure out would LeBron James uh, make a good uh, a tugger, um, and also trying to figure out which of which of our American sports stars in which sports category suddenly start to realize that running backs would make fantastic tuggers. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, part of it, part of it is the fun of that, but part of it is also pushing it all toward the ridiculous. And then you start to realize that not only would O.J. Simpson have made a fine tugger, um, what happens when charming, affable, uh, you know, uh, uh, beloved O.J. Simpson uh, gets embroiled, you know, uh, uh, leaps onto the further leaps onto the stage of international tug during the time of Bruce Jenner and Mark Spitz in the '76 Olympics? Next thing you know. He winds up the Republican nominee did for you vice check? president. <laughs> did you check to make sure that 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 OJ Simpson, because he very well may have competed in tug on uh, it, the superstars? You know, I'm afraid my research uh, in the comedy piece did not extend down to that. But of course, <laughs> I, 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 he, he he would. I mean, he was I certainly there a might fine have been tug of war on the superstars. It was definitely true. tug on the yeah, superstars. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I like that Pete, Charlie, Scramble, Rose, and Ed perfectly proportioned the Jones because, of course, they would not have gone into baseball or football. They would have been tug stars. It's, a, it's an entirely different world. And how the uh, chapter functions in the book, it is bracketed by what if the 1999 U.S. women's national soccer team had lost the Women's World Cup, which is a contemplation of women's sports in Title IX. And what if Billie Jean King had lost to Bobby Riggs? Uh, very similar. And then you have, you know, it's two, it's a chapter or two away from th- what if a tour through NBA injury history. So these aren't necessarily fun flights of fancy. It was <laughs> nice that you serve that purpose, at least in that section of the book. I'm glad to have done it. You know, the 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 one thing the the only uh, team sport that that is a sort of kind of pure strength, or at least it's a unit of people working toward the same goal specifically. It isn't an assemblage of talents like in basketball, where you know, this guy uh, is going to de- protect the rim, this guy's going to be good on the perimeter. Is crew like crew mm-hmm. is really the other team sport, but that of course you know doesn't have the universal appeal. Like you know, one needs a river. You know, and probably like, you know, admission into a final club to Mm -hmm. row American crew. But this, you just need a rope and a dream. Would the Winklevoss twins have been good at tug, though? I think they're I think they're uh, I think they are too tall. I think I feel like we you need a uh, that's I mean, that is the question. Like, I I feel like they are all length where LeBron is just, you know, he's massive, you know, from from head to toe. I do feel like you need a low center of gravity or just an overriding physical strength and presence. Uh, for all of the absurdity, Nate, the International Tug of War Federation is trying to get back into the Olympics. Of they course. were on the list for Tokyo 2020. They didn't, of course, make the cut. The president of the federation, the guy named Anton Rabe, thinks that some pro sports should be kicked out to bring back the, the, the true spirit of Olympism. Do you want to hear? Let's listen to Anton Rabe. The professional sports, uh, I personally believe they, they, they don't really belong in the Olympics, but that's my view. 
uh, and hopefully that will uh, create some space for sports such as tug of war. I think that's a perfectly legitimate argument. I completely think it's a perfectly legitimate argument, and I definitely think that there should be a place for tug. Like you know, while you know, we're never you know we've missed our Cold War window, we've missed the chance for it for you know a tug to define a world history in that way. At the same time, you could picture you can picture two, three Olympics out. Um, when, for instance, uh, uh, you know, Frank Gore comes out of uh, sports retirement to anchor the American tug team, uh, gets a little juice behind it. You, you, you could start to see um, the narrative build and maybe by, uh, you know, 2048, 2052, you know, we are uh, uh, solving uh, global uh, crises through tug. Last question. I don't know if we got to this in the edit. I guess it was always bothering me. Uh, if three of these, let's say you had a co-ed tug and a two-man tug and a one-man tug or a roller tug, you know, to try to spice sure. it up, you had different events. Rubber band the, tug. Right. Would those be called tug of wars or tugs of war? I believe that I think that you have to think about the the aspiring kid who's like living in Springfield, Missouri and wants to join, you know, join the greats of American tug. I think you have to go with what, what he would go for, go for. And I feel like he'd say tug of wars. Well, by that logic, I mean, I think you've just explained why no kid wants to be an attorney general or one of the attorneys general. I know, it's true. I think it's just an issue of branding. Nate DeMeo is the creator of the award-winning podcast, The Memory Palace. He's the co-author of- <laughs> And don't worry, and don't worry, they, they, they get to keep their awards even after this essay is published. <laughs> I know, it's true. This, this is, uh, I feel like this is where you throw in the, <laughs> was the artist in residence at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Yeah, yeah, just something that, that gives a lot to charity. He was an easy edit. <laughs> he co-wrote Pawnee, The Greatest Town in America. He's a contributor to a pawn for the review because we, we should mention the name of the book one more time. It's edited yeah. by Mike Pesca. Nate DeMeo, thanks a lot. Thank you, guys. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. And now it is time for After Balls. Tug of War debuted in the Olympics in 1900. The United States withdrew from the event because three of their tuggers were throwing the hammer. So they didn't want to do the tug to the combined Sweden-Denmark team. Like this happened in the Olympics, combined nations. They beat France in the final. One of the French tuggers, Mike, was Constantine Enriquez de Zubiera, a Haitian-born Frenchman who won silver in tug, gold in rugby, and became the first black medalist in the Olympics. Wow. Yeah. He was later a senator in Haiti. He introduced soccer to the island. He introduced soccer to Haiti. Yeah. That's nice. Impressive guy. Nice Mike, Mike, what is your Constantine Enriquez de Zubiera? Well, I, I, I'm going to use the incident that I think was referred to a couple weeks ago uh, on the show of Bay Area newscaster Mike Schumann uh, stealing Steph Curry's jacket at a Warriors practice. I think Josh mentioned it, but I'm going to use it as a jumping off point. So the details of that are Mike Schumann worked for uh, KG07 or did. And two weeks 
ago or maybe four weeks ago now, he was caught on tape taking the jacket of Golden State Warrior uh, Steph Curry's bodyguard. It was actually his bodyguard's jacket. And I guess Mike Schumann is a former NFL wide receiver, played for the 49ers. Guess he thought the jacket fit. The bodyguard maybe had the same sort of uh, Mike Schumann-esque uh, broad shoulders, said this will be a good addition to my closet. I'm sure it was a fine thread count and quality craftsmanship. Stole the jacket, lost his job. Sad for Mike Schumann. It's got me to thinking, what are some of the most notable things that I've stolen from sports stars or at sporting events? Now, when I say stolen, well, you'll hear, I don't really mean stolen, but here are three things that I could think of that I've taken from a sports venue or from a sports star, and I believe all were kosher, and at least one of them predated my time as a professional sports correspondent person. So, thing one, uh, when I was about... 10 or 11 years old, it was the Jets' last game at Shea Stadium, and everyone was tearing up the field. And uh, we were leaving the stadium, my dad and I, we had season tickets, and a cop had taken huge clumps of grass, and he was sort of uh, commandeering these this grass. And my dad said, uh, yeah, how you doing? Can I just help you with that grass? Take that grass for me? He's like, yeah, go take it. So we have Shea Stadium grass in the backyard. Take it from Shea Stadium, but the cop allowed it. That's one. Two is when I would cover the Final Four, they always covered the court with confetti. And one year I had a recording kit and a bunch of confetti got in my kit and I walked out of the stadium with it. And I said to myself, I wonder if I was like a flight attendant on Eastern Airlines, if I would get fired for this. But I took some of the confetti and I mailed it to my friend Golder because he's a big Yukon fan, or at least lives in Connecticut. And the third thing that I stole was when I was in high school, I did one of these summer programs at a college and it was Syracuse University. And Derek Coleman was in my sociology class. And they would post, you probably remember this because times were less sensitive. They would post everyone's grade next to their social security number on the board. So I remember when the grades were posted, I went there and listed by social security number was everyone in the class, but they also listed attendance. And I remember that I totally figured out what Derek Coleman's social security number was because he was in class three days. I remembered those days and there they were marked as present. So I'm like, all right. And I wrote down Derek Coleman's social security number. I have no idea. Back then, this was there was no identity theft. The point of putting it on the board to tell everyone would show you that it was considered a different thing than it is now. And I did nothing with it. But for a year or two, I had Derek Coleman's social security number written down in my wallet. I have since lost it. If only I had kept it, I'd be... I don't know, probably guilty of a crime. I don't know about the statute of limitations. And if you're wondering, he got a D. <laughs> that was going to be my one question. What have you stolen? I'm a pretty, uh, pretty scared person, particularly <laughs> as a child. I remember I was in the Yankees locker room when I was seven, um, getting a tour, and I asked very politely if I could have a piece of bubble gum. Oh. <laughs> Wouldn't even go take it. That's awesome. I was a rules boy. So, so Stefan, the question that I've been thinking is, uh, of course, what if? But the sub-question is, Stefan, what is your Constantin Enriquez de Zubiera? Well, as it happens, Mike, as it's so, yes. I am just going to talk about my contribution to Upon Further Review. Uh, the title of my essay is, What If Bucky Dent Hadn't Homered Over the Green Monster in 1978? So here's the setup. I'm 15. I was 15 in 1978. Um, my buddies and I, Kojak, Fonzie, and the Cannon, we get on a train 
to go watch the Yankees play the Red Sox in Fenway Park, one game playoff to decide the winner of the East Division of the American League in 1978. We made it without a hitch. Our jowly European history teacher, Mr. Smith, Froggy, wondered what the hell we were doing at school so early, but he didn't break stride. At the train station, Kojak and Fonzie scanned for commuting dads while the canon and I bought tickets. We told the conductors we had the day off, teacher meetings, Kojak said. Upon arrival in Boston, I found a payphone and called my brother, who was on an eight-year plan at MIT. He asked what the fuck I was doing here and then said he was too stoned to join us. Fenway Park was a dump. Even 15-year-old me knew that. But I understood that it was mythic, too, that lyric little band box of a ballpark in Updike's words, which I wouldn't read for another decade. It was impossible to deny the history of Fenway, just as it was impossible to deny the history of the stadium, the original, not the renovated one. Carlton Fisk waving that home run fair in 1975 sure was something, especially because they lost Game 7. And the rivalry had turned feral. Munson and Fisk brawling at home plate in 73, Chambliss getting hit in the arm by a dart, an actual dart thrown by a fan in 74, Pinella and Fisk and then Nettles and Lee brawling in 76, Lee separating his shoulder. Sprinkle that on your pancakes, spaceman. We paid 20 bucks a piece for the seats. Face was 575. That was nuts, but we were teenagers in Yankees caps, easy marks. Our cash reserves from a spring and summer of mowing and umpiring were nearly depleted. But we bought round-trip tickets and could survive on hot dogs and adrenaline. And holy shit, third row, just to the right of the pesky pole in right field, all that green, the seats, the grass, the monster, it was beautiful. Hell and heaven all at once. We were going to see history, just not the history we expected. So when you, you wanted to write this story, did you always write, want to write it in this form? Yeah. I think the first thing I said to you was I want to do fiction. Uh -huh. um, I, wanted to do, I wanted to do the opposite. I wanted to contemplate like how my life would be different. Like This was the highlight of my life to that point, Mike. This was the most glorious moment of my youth. Chambliss hitting a home run in 1976 when the Yankees beat the Kansas City Royals to get to the World Series. To that point, that had been number one. And then I was at the Reggie Jackson three-home run game in 1977. That was pretty amazing, except for the fact that the asshole that took me to the game insisted that we leave early, so <laughs> yeah, I missed the third early. home run. I talk about that all the time. It's still scary. Your friend's dad? My friend's dad. No, he was just a dad. He was like a oh. neighborhood dad. A um, neighborhood? This was like an institution. This friend. is an institution, I think, that is unknown these days. Friend. The neighborhood dad. He was a family <laughs> yeah. friend. Um, and then this. This was amazing. I was at JV soccer practice. Uh-huh. So we went to practice rather than going home to watch the game on TV. The coach, Jimmy DeFlippo, let us listen to the game. So we had, I, was, I was carrying a transistor radio in my hand during practice. And when Bucky Dent hits the home run over the green monster, I am sprinting around the field in ecstasy. So yeah, when I wanted to reconsider this as failure, I wanted to reconsider this as a nightmare and how that would have, how the next 40 years of baseball and my life would have transpired. Did was there one of the, one of your friends was a name changed? I'm trying to remember. Was Cannon really someone else? No, the Cannon was a friend of mine. Kojak was a friend of mine, and, and so the, was and, uh, Fonz, uh, Fonzie was was uh, was made up. 
Uh-huh. Yeah. And because w- uh, as suits the spirit of the times, yeah. w- was Cannon, did he have a big leg in soccer? Is that the deal? He was not a very good soccer player, but uh-huh. he, uh, but our JV coach, he saw him take a penalty kick and it happened yeah. to be a pretty strong shot. So he was dubbed the Cannon after that oh. by the coach. Yeah. Because when you get down to it, Cannon, Kojak, and Fonzie are all 70s male icons. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And Kojak, was he balding? Kojak got a buzz cut in like fourth grade or fifth grade. That's and good. So he was instantly Kojak. And, and did he suck on lollipops and tell you to keep your eye on the sparrow <laughs> and all that? No, there was in, in our edit, there was a lot of back and forth with uh, Tattered Demalion. Yes. I used the word Tattered Demalion. I've done an afterball about the word Tattered Demalion. I know. My homage, uh, Roger Angel. And I, I get it into every, um, every, every piece that I can. And in, in this case, and I, I, I had to explain some of this to you, but I really strove for verisimilitude. Yes. So, so saying words, I was, we, we talked about saying words that you wouldn't have known then. Although, I mean, it was written, just the fluidity of writing is, of course, probably beyond even a very, very talented uh, junior in high school. So let's, let's note that. But I, I don't think that jumps out to the reader as, no, no high school junior would be this cogent with his thoughts. But yeah, if but, there is one or two... Yeah. And when we get to the end of the piece, you realize that it's being written with 40 years of perspective because I do right. bring it up to date. But the, the verisimilitude that I am proudest of is that you kind of need to be a Red Sox-Yankees connoisseur because all of the details in this piece are real, sometimes twisted slightly. So the play-by-play of the fictitious events are verbatim the play-by-play of the Yankees' broadcast of Dent's home run. Um, There are references to Roger Angel's um, essay about the Red Sox losing to the Mets in 1986, the title of which was The Palindrome, Not So Boston. Um, there is a reference to Updike's, not just Lyric Little Bandbox, but to the title of that essay, which appeared in The New Yorker 2, Hub Fans Bid Kid Adieu. So I sort of pulled every last one of my favorite baseball references out and crammed them into these 3,000 words. Do you really think, so this is this came up at least 31 times. Uh, it is tempting to go for the big ripple. This chain, this one thing change, and it changes everything. And especially in the form you're writing, where you're really not trying to convince anyone, you're trying to entertain. Right. And when we, uh, when we entertain the idea of the what if, we're very willing to go with huge differences. Whereas if this were an essay like Rob Nyer wrote about what if there were a DH, he really tried to prove what if there were a DH in the National League. He documented how close we came and he really tried to prove, I mean, the intent of that essay was you come away from it saying, I buy his thesis that these two World Series champions would be different or actually saying most of them would be. You know, I really, he puts, he marshals a good argument. Yours wasn't marshaling a good argument. Yours was uh, really opening us up to the possibility of the universe. But let's do the other thing. If uh, Bucky hadn't homered, well, first of all, if he hadn't homered, they could have come back and won in a, sure. in a different inning. But let's just say, I'll even grant you that the Red Sox winning in the American League that year, and they go on to win the World Series, which is a possibility. But let's say they win one World Series. Everyone who has absorbed the myth of the uh, woebegotten uh, mm-hmm. 
Boston sports fan would say that changes everything, but I don't know if it does. And the reason is I'm a Mets fan, and that one win in 86 does not really change the essential character of the Mets fan. It's a nice thing. Yes, one win in 69, but I wasn't alive for that. It's a very nice thing for me to hold on to. If they had lost in 86, I'd have an extra talking point, I suppose, but I don't think it would really change the day-in, day-out experience or self-conception. But you tell me. I think that the Red Sox are of a different sort of genre of Wobegone than the Mets. I mean, this was 1918, and if it ends in 1978, and I sort of make, I allude to this in, in my essay, because they don't lose in 78, that 60 years really doesn't feel like that long. And 40 more years after that, well, you know, we didn't win for 60 years. So if we don't win for 40 more, what's the big deal? I'm not saying that that's what happened because that's not actually what happens in the essay. Um, So I do think that would have been character changing. The, the, The difference is, I think that, and this has nothing to do with the Red Sox or the Yankees or anybody, is that that these things... I think because of the way the media evolved in the years since then, that maybe in 1978, no, it's not perceived as that big a deal. Um, that 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 the Red Sox winning is just oh, the Red Sox won. It really took like Dan Shaughnessy turning it into a thing, the Curse of the Bambino, to make it a a, a sort of emblematic part of this franchise. Um, and that did happen after you know, 75. So it was already in the ether, but then the continued failure is what raises it to the level of, of national tragedy or at least Bostonian tragedy. I think, I think the 86 world series is experienced similarly in Boston, but different nationally. I think the things we say about it to put it in the context of curses and generational failures, that's one thing. But I think that to lose a World Series on that play, which is featured on the cover of the book, although a tweaked version of it, uh, to lose a World Series in that way still hurts the actual fan as much. It's still gutting, you know, and I don't know if it's 88% of the intestine that's gutting as opposed to 89, but it still absolutely is gutting. And I wanted to feel what it was like to be gutted, which is why I had Dent, not Homer, and something else happen. And of course, it's really just 3,000 words building up to a joke. Yeah. <laughs> that, is a, that is our show for today. That's the best way today. to do it. <laughs> that is our show for today. Our producer is Patrick Fort. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. And you can email us at hangup at slate.com. I'm Stefan Fatsis. Thank you, Mike Pesca. Remember Zelmo Beatty. And thanks for listening. something that's not boring a laundry oh a book club computer solitaire huh ah oh, sorry we were looking for chumba casino that's right chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino style games join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. 
my colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs>